system. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life and growing a variety of different plants. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. I'm an active Master Gardener and have kept certification for over a decade and through six different states. So you can contact me from my webpage, Kate Copsey. Com or through America's web radio station site. And if you have any questions about something in your garden, please post them on our Facebook page and maybe we can answer them on the air. This morning, we are going to be talking about fall planting with Benjamin Voigt from Lincoln, Nebraska. Good morning, Benjamin. Good morning, Kate. Yes, and I know that you have been a garden writer and lecturer at the University of Nebraska. So let's start maybe with a little of your background in gardening and how you ended up specializing in natives particularly. Were you kind of always interested in gardening or did that just happen kind of after college? I was not interested in gardening for a long time. Uh, I had a very active uh, mother who was always out outside. Uh, she had a big front front garden and a big back garden with a stream and a little pond that neighborhood dogs would come and bathe in. But my gardening experience when I was younger was my mom waking us up early in the morning to go outside to help clean up things that she had chopped down and and, and dug up and. I didn't mind being outside. I liked it more than my sisters, but I certainly had no interest in gardening until I got a home of my own in my, oh, must have been mid-20s, and my mom helped me move into my home, and she said, you need a garden out here. Let's go to the nursery and buy you some plants. <laughs> well, I know one of my first major uh, gardening experiences, my, my dad, um, we had lots of roses, and I think there must have been about between 50 and 100. It seemed like 500 at the time. And he'd put uh, my two brothers on painting uh, parts of the house. And he said, you can, you can do the uh, the roses, prune the roses. And this was must have been maybe early summer, maybe fall. I can't remember now. But, but he showed me how to do one. Then he asked me to do the second under guide. And then he said, okay, go for it. Do all the rest. And I'm thinking... Oh, my Lord. <laughs> but I, I'm not sure how many I butchered, but by the end of it, I seem to be able to prune a rose. <laughs> and pro- probably one of, those, um, one of those things that you learn once and, uh, you know, gradually you refine it. But, uh, yeah, fun. Yes. Well, you know, gardening is trial by error, so I think that's the best kind of lesson he could have given you. Oh, oh yes, I didn't appreciate it at the time. but and, <laughs> and in fact, it wasn't until probably the knockout rose came on the market that I actually started growing roses and then heirloom roses, uh, because 
I don't know, all the ones that you got at the supermarket and places, they just ended up with black spot and aphids and Lord knows what, and they just didn't look good. So I gave up on them until, as I say, the knockout rose arrived, and uh, then I found heirloom roses, which are just as good, and they have scent to them. So so I did come back to, to roses eventually. But um, but in anyway, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, fall gardening, and for many years, I, you know, fall, fall used to be kind of the clear everything away and that was it and then I found found that actually fall was good for planting so um you know rather than hearing the topic put your garden to bed um fall is probably a better time to plant a lot of different things so how far um into fall and winter do you think we could safely plant um think things like bulbs and perennials uh, I'm going to cheat and say it depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody uses that excuse. It does depend on where you are, and it depends on what you're planting. Uh, you know, bulbs, in, in, in general, you're looking to late fall, you know, when the soil gets down to about 50 degrees or so but hasn't frozen yet. And Deciduous trees, trees that lose their leaves. Um, I've got friends who plant into late November, sometimes early December, uh, and I'm I'm still planting uh, herbaceous perennials, flowering perennials into early November, and that's maybe cheating a little bit, but you know, shoot, it's still nice outside right now. Why not? It's perfect, lovely weather to be out there working. Oh yeah, and and I think you know, with particularly um, perennials. All the nurseries are trying to get rid of them. And, you know, it, it, I think it's almost like a rescue type thing. You know, buy one, get get three free. Yes, I'm, I'm right there. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, get, get them. You know, it's so nice outside for you so you're not sweating as much. You don't get, at least I don't get as tired as quickly when it's this kind of weather. And, and, and you're still giving the plants enough time to put their roots down into the warmer soil going into November and December. And, and of course, the plants like it cooler, too, because they're not as stressed out with hot temperatures and hot, drying winds. So everybody's happy in fall is how I look at it. Well, well, yes, and, and there aren't anywhere close to as many bugs and things like that around. And, you know, 90 degrees, I, I, I don't know about you, but and the plants, but I'm tired at 90 degrees. I don't want to be out there. <laughs> oh, shoot. I'm, I'm tired at 70 degrees, Kate. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, uh, I, yeah. Um, but, of course, the other thing about fall is, um, you know, I think probably the, the trees have peaked right now, but there, there's also lots of colour I think in in the garden, but I've, I've had my mother staying with me throughout October. And one of the things that I always buy when I first go into a new house um, that really is not known for its fall colour is the witch hazel, and that was absolutely beautiful. It's got that really burnt orange leaves, and she's actually found it at a local nursery in the 24 hours that she's been back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, there, there are some great uh, fall fall colours um, uh, out there, and I know you you're particularly into uh, natives. I mean, are there any natives that give that that beautiful fall colour? Well, absolutely. And and I'm going to give you my little caveat here and say that you know we don't just have to look at fall colour when we're thinking about woody plants like trees and shrubs. 
I think too often it's easy just to think about fall color and the tree canopy and, and the shrubs around your house, but there are incredible perennials that also give great fall color. I'm, I'm thinking of two Amsonia species, Amsonia hubrichtii, the Arkansas blue star, and then there's an Amsonia illustris. They both give wonderful yellow colors. Um, some other native plants like Liatris uh, gets a rainbow of colors. Uh, even my swamp milkweed can sometimes get a rainbow of colors depending on what the temperature is and the soil moisture is. Um, and, of course, you know, everybody has sedum, and, you know, um, Autumn Joy is a well-known cultivar. I think everybody plants, and its leaves are quite beautiful yellow, especially if you're putting, putting them in groups of three or five to get even more impact. So I think it's really important that we think about fall color up high, in the middle, and then down low where the perennials are. Yeah, and you know, and, and I certainly think the the autumn joy one, but I didn't realize that was a native. Um, oh, it's not a native. No, I was just throwing out oh. another plant. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but when but when we talk about natives, um, are we talking? You're in Lincoln, Nebraska. So would you count natives as being really with the upper Midwest natives versus me? Would have a different sort of natives for the East Coast. Actually, we share a lot of the same natives um, between the East Coast and here in eastern Nebraska, especially. If you go more over into central Nebraska or western Nebraska, then you're going to be getting more natives that are you know, shorter, scrubby, drought-tolerant, rocky mountain sort of, sort of natives that are very different than what the wetter, tall grass prairies of eastern Nebraska are like. And, and, you know, our eastern tall grass prairies have so many of the same perennials um, that stretch all the way across to the east coast. Now, that doesn't mean we have all the same plants, but we do have a very large number of the same types of plants. So, so if I say, you know, Joe Pieweed out here, uh, the sweet, sweet Joe Pieweed that's about six oh, feet tall, yes. that's, that's, that's native here, but I think it's native by you, too. Well, um, I, I know it grows well here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd have to go look on my uh, USDA uh, map here to confirm it's native over there. But, you know, uh-huh. Culver's roots, some, some onions, some wild onions, there's there's so many plants. Uh-huh. Of course, lot, lot, lots of milkweeds. Um, I'm a big milkweed fan, you know, with the monarchs. I think a lot of folks are. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what about grasses? Because grasses look great in, in the fall and winter if you can keep them upright. Um, and the seed heads and diff- different things like that, which I think are, are important. Do they give good color um, throughout the year, or, or do they usually get too battered that we ought to maybe just forget about it and um, cut, trim them down? Oh, no, don't forget about it and trim them down. Even e- even if you don't like their color over the winter, I think it's important to leave them up for, you know, even like grasses that get bent down by heavy snow, It's I've, I've countless times seen seeing birds go under the bent down portion of the grass in a winter snowstorm and huddle together and take shelter during the snowstorm. So you don't don't want to cut that stuff down because you're providing shelter for wildlife and then of course birds are gonna use those grasses in the spring to uh, make their nests. And and then some of those grasses have seed heads going into the winter that, that wildlife are feeding on. So I- that's first part of my answer but yeah go ahead oh well i was going to say they don't uh, set seed then uh, you usually the grasses 
Oh, sure they do. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) One of my one of my favorite tall grasses native to the tall grass prairie and 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 pretty darn east that might go all the way east by you is is called Indian grass, and it has some really neat orange yellow um, rust fall color. And then it stays nice and upright um, in winter and has ornamental seed heads going through most of the winter. And, you know, that's probably six feet in bloom, that Indian grass. Ooh, nice. And, and then there's little blue stem. I think that one is, is pretty stout. It has wonderful red, red-orange fall color, and it's probably just about three feet tall usually, two or three feet tall. And it stays pretty, pretty upright throughout the winter. So... And, of course, who doesn't want to look out at their garden and see stuff? So if you at least have grasses out there, and, and especially yeah. if you're clumping them and drifting them. Yeah, and, I, and I, I think they look great with the, that low level of um, when you get the sun on them. Mm, mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, um, and and you know the and the the winter breezes and things. You know, just seeing them move around a little bit. It's one of the few things that are up uh, that do move around and and can go through a winter storm or or the winter, aren't they? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, and I lo- I love to hear them in the summer too. You know, if, if you don't if you don't uh, have have the money to put in a, a water feature of, of any size or you just can't fit the water feature, you know, grasses can sort of emulate yeah. the calming, soothing sound of water. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so definitely a, a background for a garden. But, you know, we need, I need to go for our first commercial break here, but come back and listen to Benjamin Voigt about planting and fall gardening. And when we come back, we'll chat more about what you can plant in the fall in just a moment. This is Michael Gannot with the Middle East Research Center Limited, bringing you Insight to Israel, the truth about the greatness of the Jewish state and its struggle for sovereignty and security, every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find archives at americaswebradio.com webpages. And you can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitchers too. And today we're talking fall planting and fall gardening with Benjamin Voigt from Lincoln, Nebraska. And I have to ask Benjamin, have you guys had snow yet? Oh, my gosh, no. Heaven forbid. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you make that sound like you wouldn't normally have it in November. <laughs> uh, may, maybe maybe a little dusting or an inch or two at the very end. I know the panhandle has already had a couple inches of snow, but they're closer to the Rockies. So. Yeah. Maybe I just think of Nebraska as being the snow belt at the top of nowhere type of thing. <laughs> No, I think that's Minnesota. I, I grew up in Minnesota. That's snow, you know. Uh-huh. Anyway, so let's talk fall planting. And we talk, we touched on this a little bit. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned so long as the, that a lot of things do better because uh, the soil is warm. Um, so, But can we go as far as so long as it's not frozen, it's warm enough to plant? Or should we start, um, as, as soon as we get serious frost, we should maybe stop planting? It depends. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think with with deciduous trees and shrubs, I think you're generally okay going into November, maybe even late November. You know, depending on where you are. If you're if you're in the South, if you're in Mississippi or Alabama or Texas, I think you can go a lot further. I've never gardened down there, but you know, I've heard of people gardening in January and February down that way. Um, I would say maybe maybe in the fall, the only thing you want to be careful about are, are, are these warm, the warm season native grasses we have. Like I was just talking about the Indian grass, blue stem, switchgrass. Um, those grasses probably would benefit from uh, warmer conditions earlier in the fall to really get their roots set up and, and going before before the first frost hits and then really not. Well, how about things that um, that are supposed to maybe stay dormant, like uh, like some of the trees, the fruit trees, and things like that? Uh, that they, they arrive dormant. Um, how early can we plant those so that they don't come out of dormancy? Are those are we supposed to wait for the the soil to be really cold but still um, diggable? But but you do, I'm assuming that if they're dormant, they're not going to put down roots at the, uh, before next spring. Is that right? Well, no, they, they should be putting roots down. I, I'm, I'm hoping that anybody who's, who's shipping dormant plants are not shipping them when you shouldn't be planting them. Um, I know there are lots of nurseries who are very, um, I can't say the word, reputable, and they're not shipping stuff when you shouldn't be planting them. So, I mean, the whole point of these, these, uh, these you know, dormant plants is that, you know, go ahead. Go for it. You know, you're ready. You're you're ready to go. That dormant. It's the dormant season. Put them in the ground. And I, I certainly think fruit trees and things like that. Uh, you know, when, when they arrive dormant, they're such fun to put to put in. Um, although, though, last year I I, I had to keep a, a few on the deck for a while because when they arrived, we'd actually already got snow. Which, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean that that was a horrible winter. Uh, but but that's uh, <laughs> but anyway, we mentioned perennials that are on sale at a lot of nurseries, um, usually because I'm assuming that they don't want to carry them through to spring where they're going to have to repot them and pot them up and maybe the bigger plants aren't as saleable as the the smaller cheaper ones um but some of them can be looking a little 
bedraggled. Um, so how, what, what should we look for maybe to tell whether the plant or the perennial is actually a viable perennial and it's just the dead top growth that's looking a bit bedraggled rather than um, the whole plant being not healthy? Is there a way of telling when it's going into dormancy a good or a bad plant? Well, I, I, I would I would scratch the surface of any any stems, especially on trees and shrubs. You know, you scratch off that top layer of bark or, or whatever, and see if it's green underneath. And if it's green, you know, your your chances are your chances are better. Um, you know, and then too, you know, this this time of year when plants are on sale and nurseries are getting one are, are wanting to get rid of them, you know, it helps to maybe lift that plant out of the pot and see what the root zone looks like. Chances are. Are going to be roots circling and circling, and just going to be a root-bound plant. So when you get home, do an extra special job of breaking up those roots, maybe even completely washing out all of the potting soil, so all you have is roots, and that will hopefully help the plant establish a little bit better. And, and if a plant um, maybe has lots of top growth on it, um, should we maybe trim that? off as we're planting them so that they're not maybe putting in energy into trying to maybe uh, keep keep prettier at the top so they've got the energy going into the roots or do they need that balance with the photosynthesis on the top still exactly that second one don't don't cut the don't cut any leaves or branches off because they do they need that energy that those leaves even if there's only a couple of leaves on there because it's so ratty looking they need energy they can get from those leaves to to you know, transfer that energy down into their roots and get those roots going and established so they can overwinter well and come back healthy and wonderful next spring. Okay, so um, you know, and I know that um, you know when we get in these things into the ground, quite often, uh, particularly as you go into November and December, we're probably facing a few storms which on the one hand bring moisture but they they also bring a lot of wind is it better to put things in and say we've got rain come in and it might be a bit um, stormy but it's better to put it in now to get the rain or should we typically wait until after the storm and maybe the ground is is a little soggy but is, is it better to wait until after that and put it in after the storm mm, i think i would personally i would put it in before because Hey, free watering, you know, <laughs> get, get in there. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're planting a tree or a shrub or something, that wind is going gonna, is gonna to rock that tree and shrub a little bit, and that will help encourage the tree actually to put out roots a little bit faster so it will stabilize itself. That's why, you know, we have, we have, we have people who are staking their trees for years and years, and ideally you wouldn't even stake them at all. But if you have, if you're in a really wind-prone location, or you're in some really soggy soil, you might need to stake it for the first year, and then and then take yeah. that stake out. But but of course, the, the, I think if you're doing, doing it afterwards, maybe, maybe you'd have to wait for the the ground to be fully drained before you start trying to put anything in. Yeah. Well, and again, that certainly depends on, on what what you're putting in. I mean, if you're putting in a boggy plant into a boggy area, you know, plant it away. But yeah, if it's if it's if that's not the case, you probably do want to wait a day or two. Not, not to mention it, it makes very muddy boots if you try and yeah. do it too wet. <laughs> oh, I, I know about that. When I started my garden, it was, I mean, it was completely wet, soggy, nasty clay, the kind of clay you can make fantastic pots out of. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure I put on another 20 pounds before I made it into the door. <laughs> <laughs> And, and 
and it's one of those things, things where, where the rest of the family say the hose pipe is there. <laughs> yeah, rinse off outside and don't don't bring that in. Uh, but but I, I know that having talked to um, several conifer people, they say conifers shouldn't be planted in the fall. Now this was coming from somebody in Michigan. Is that something that's a general rule of thumb that they do better in the spring or was it something for maybe the upper Midwest or the Great Lakes um, that made it that it was better in spring when your ground is maybe damper or something? Um, Is there a reason for that, do you think? Uh, The reason is going to come with uh, drying out of the leaves and having a plant that hasn't established roots to draw water from. So if if you're in or climb in a colder zone like Michigan, you probably want to be planting your conifer in the first half of September or so, so it has time to get its roots out. Otherwise, if you're going to if you plant a conifer in in November, say it's not going to have time probably to get its roots out into the soil so that it can get water up into there because these these plants aren't losing their leaves, right? They're going to keep having evaporation going on the whole winter. So if it's just a plant in a hole with no roots in the soil, where is it going to where is it going to get its water from? You're going to have to keep up with it or hope you have a warm day where it's warm enough that you can water it. And, and if you do have conifers in general in the garden, whether they're just planted or not, should you cover them with burlap for the winter or, or that wilt-proof stuff? Does that help? Oh, I've tried that stuff before, and I didn't think it helps, but... You'll you'll probably hear people say yes it helps and you hear people say yes no it doesn't so I don't know what kind of answer to give you on that for me I didn't see anything uh, I, I, yeah. I think it's just better to plant at the right time of year yeah uh, because I, I think one of the ideas of putting the um, the burlap around was to stop um, may, maybe the wind uh, drying it out too much the temperatures they can cope with but that wind chill in there maybe takes them a little bit too much and, and sort of uh, dries out the the needles or, or any tree a little bit right yeah and I think it, I think it's especially important to try it just to make sure you get that that conifer in the right place at the right time but also try and choose a plant that you know is adapted to your to your region, to your city, your location, and maybe that will be a native conifer. Uh, But at least try to find one that you know for sure is adaptable and you've done the research on it, not just one website or one person, but several. Yeah, and and I think sourcing some something as close to home um, is also quite important. You know, don't don't go 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 to somewhere in I don't know Maine or something for the apple tree if you live in Georgia. Um, maybe find no. some somebody in on that southern tier to provide it. Does that help? Well, you know, yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, if you if you if you're living in Michigan and going to the nursery to buy a tree, you don't know where your trees come from. So, it's, you know, if it's come from Florida, it's, compl- it's completely used to different kind of environment, especially if its seed source was from the southeast somewhere. So you got a tree that's just not adaptable for your climate at all. E- even though it might be native to your area, that where it was grown, its seed source, not native. So it's not going to do as well. Yeah. And, and what about size? I mean, is it, um, would you say that a smaller, particularly um, a, a tree or shrub, should be fairly small rather than a full-size one? It's easier to, to sustain it? Well, I, I think it's, number one, it's easier to plant. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love anything that's easier, but I, think, I, I do think in general smaller, smaller woody plants are going to establish just as fast as, as a bigger one. 
you know, so why spend the money on a on a two or three hundred dollar tree when you can spend money on a fifty dollar one? Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't if you get one of those big ones, you're gonna have all those roots that have been cut off when it when it was dug up. If it's if it's bald and burlap, or you're gonna have it all root bound in the pot. So if you get a smaller tree, then you know it's it's just it doesn't have as big of a root mass. So that's actually a good thing because then it will want to establish it quickly. Yeah, and and of course they're, they're a lot easier to to manipulate. I think, and the hole doesn't have to be quite as big as those um, those great big ones. Now, I think once you get to a certain certain size on the ball and burlap, it's easier to say, can you send a man with it for the hole? Because I mean, I mean, I'm good with a pickaxe, but you know, a, a sort of a three foot deep hole is a little beyond me, <laughs> even in the winter. Um, so I I always think it's nice to have a service from a local nursery if they do. Provide Provide somebody to dig the holes. They're so much more efficient. They've got tractors or something that dig holes really quickly as well. Yeah, or, or either start procreating and get some teenage boys going in your family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've, I've had those. Trust me, not not useful for digging holes. <laughs> but, but anyway, we need to take another quick commercial break here. But I want to remind you, you're listening to the Master Gardener Hour, and we'll be right back with more about fall garden tips. We will be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Peter Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking fall gardening with Benjamin Voigt from up there in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, so we've talked a little about um, sort of things that we can put into the ground. Um, so let's turn a little to fall cleanup. I know we have to get rid of all the dead leaves off the ground um, from the perennial beds and the dead veggies and out of the way because uh, that, that encourages fungus. But what about um, th- things like dahlias and things? When, at what stage do you think they should be? Maybe the things that, that are tender or more too tender for your area, like car- carnas and, and gladiolus and, and that type of thing, 
those don't have to be stored inside over the winter. Should we be taking those up at the same time as we're doing the fall cleanup? Oh, you're probably going to have to do them before, right? Because you're going you're gonna to want to get them out before the, before the first frost comes along. Um, so, you know, out here, I think, I don't even remember anywhere. I think our first frost bug date is usually like early or middle September. So certainly by then, you want to be getting that tender stuff out and moved inside if you want to keep it. Um, let me go back and say something about cleanup because I know you talked about leaves and diseases, and I suppose that could be a problem. But I'm the kind of person who strongly believes in leaving leaves and detritus and all and, and twigs and whatnot in the garden because we have things like uh, native bees, butterflies that are going to be overwintering and they'll be hiding and sleeping underneath that leaf litter. So for me, I would advocate leaving leaf litter in the garden, at least a perennial flower garden. If it's a vegetable garden, I think that's you know different arena you're talking about. You do need to clean it up because you don't want the decay material and, and there to generate diseases that will be in the soil next year. But but that doesn't happen so often in the perennial bed then? No, I've never had any problems with it. And, uh-huh. and there's just and there's even frogs and things that are out there uh, overwintering. Um, and you know you know in the spring when I actually do my clean up, I do my clean up about April fifteenth and so I'll cut everything down, all my perennials and grasses with a, with a little hedge trimmer and I just pretty much leave it where it falls. Um, and a lot of things that are hollow-stemmed, like, like well, we talked about Joe Pieweed before, that's hollow-stemmed. Um, you'll have uh, a lot of native bees will go in there to nest, uh, to put their larvae in there, put the pollen, and, you know, spiders and beetles and things um, reproducing in there all throughout the winter, and, and some will even hang out in there over the winter. So yeah, it's, it's, what, uh, it's a, what Neil Dybald calls, uh, you know, no-maintenance gardening. It's <laughs> K-N-O-W. <laughs> I must admit, I'm, I'm really sloppy at, at cutting perennials down, too, because I think they tend to leave a little bit of winter in interest. Things like um, an agastache, for instance, which is kind of a, a tea herb. You know, that's got those beautiful, almost wheat-like um, heads to them. I don't know if they've got any flower, um, seeds still in them, but they, they do look a little more interesting than blank ground over the winter. Well, yeah, and, and if you're leaving your garden up throughout the whole winter, you're also helping it catch snow if you live in a colder area, and, and snow is a wonderful insulator, number one. So you know, usually we get a snowstorm, and then it gets really cold afterwards, so it's good to have that snow cover and the snow caught in the garden. Um, but, you know, snow is also good for adding moisture, so when it melts in the spring, you've got your free moisture right there penetrating slowly, percolating into the soil. Uh, well, and then there's the issue, too, of um, you cut those hollow stem plants down, you're going to have water going down those stems, down into the root zone in the crown, and then freezing and killing the plant. Oh. So, well, I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to leave, leave them more, um, I guess, because um, next spring I know what's where, because you can see the new oh. growth coming up. And that, to me, I sometimes need, yeah. need to the, the old plant there to remind me what in the world that was. <laughs> yeah, and that's far prettier looking to me than having a plant label or plant tag on every plant. So, 
Well, that, yes, I, I don't know. My, my plant tags disappear. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, don't know whether it's rodents or wind or just... I, I can't, can't tend to bury them and cover them with mulch so I can find them again, and I never can. So I'm not sure <laughs> what, what, what's out, out there in the garden, but the gods of the plant tag obviously want my plant tag somewhere else. Um, yes, I, I think there is a plant tag fairy that visits gardens every winter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there there should be, um, but uh, you know it's uh, it, it's fun fun I think in in the spring when you can find all those old friends. I mean, I, much as I like fall, I love spring because that reemergence of all those things that it, it, and it's a how bad bad was winter? Um, did you survive? Didn't you survive? It, it's it's just a great time of year. You know, and I'm also very sentimental about all the seed heads and the stalks that have been picked over. You know, I'll, I, uh, it was last, I think it was last, this last spring, there was a, a latris stalk that was all bent and funny and it grew in a curly cue. And I, I remembered it from last year. I remembered seeing butterflies one day on it and how that was just a pretty day. So when I went to clean up the garden in the spring, I came to that latris getting ready to cut it down and I stopped for a moment and remembered that pretty day from last year and I, I didn't want to cut down that Leatris. <laughs> keep it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so what about things that have got seeds on them um, or, or even if they, like the Agastache, that maybe the seeds have gone, um, are they still useful for places for birds to sit and may, maybe just take the sunshine in or something? Oh, absolutely, yes. And uh, I, I, I am a big fan of the tall herbaceous perennials, things that are getting six, eight, ten feet tall. I've noticed that birds love to come to my garden and perch on these taller plants and be social in the winter sun, and then they usually use those taller plants especially as a place to jump off from on their way to the bird feeder we have out back. So I think they land on the tall plants first, make sure everything's okay, then hop over to the bird feeder. And, and I think most gardeners like to welcome birds as well. So that's kind of always out to me an added bonus to to gar- gardening. Um, and uh, you know, and, and I think probably um, things that have seed heads on them, like like uh, maybe sunflowers or something. Um, is it are they just too big to to leave, or, or should we maybe t- take down some of those larger ones? No, no. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> because they'll fall over anyway, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, they probably will fall over, but, you know, I mean, a lot of these sunflower. I mean, right now my sunflowers are all pretty much picked over. You yeah. Know, the, the goldfinches already already come in, and uh, but there's still some seeds in there, and they're going to fall out and, and help other life. They'll help some birds in the winter. They'll probably help some rodents, some bad rodents and some good rodents. Uh-huh. So I, I'm just a proponent of leaving everything up in the perennial garden. So, so we shouldn't be neat freaks about flattening ev- everything so that it looks neat under the snow or something. No, I think that's the worst thing you could do for your garden and for wildlife. Yeah, and and, and I, I like the winter interest. But what about fall berries? Um, and I know that uh, think some of the berries, like like the viburnums, the birds will eat. Will they eat most fall berries, like a, a calicarpa or a beautyberry type type purple one? I know I love oh, them, mm-hmm. but do the yeah. do the birds eat that too? <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's certainly a favor, absolutely. Um, and I know people, I know. I know people are always thinking about crab apples too, um, and crab apples have to go through several freeze thaw cycles before they come edible for most birds. So that's why, you know, I'll have 
I'll have, uh, oh, what do you call those birds, cedar waxwings um, come through in the spring as they're migrating back up north, and they'll gorge themselves on most of my crabapple trees in the spring um, because that, that that's when the crabapples are actually palatable to them. Oh, I never thought about that with crabapples. Most of them seem to fall on the on the ground, but the cedar waxwing is a beautiful bird. Uh, oh, so, yes. yes. And so, so is it important maybe to do natives when you want to do birds, um, or, or do these um, exotic plants that uh, produce maybe berries too? Are they not as good for the birds? Well, you have to think these these birds have co-evolved with with the native plants for tens of thousands of years more, you know, so so they, they eat berries. Um, but that's not to say that's the only berries they eat because they also eat uh, berries from plants that are invasive and, and help spread those around. But I think, I think in general it's always good to have a, a, a healthy number of native plants in your garden because the birds will recognize those berries and those plants. Insects will recognize the leaves and they'll, they'll lay their eggs on them and and a lot of the bees are also in sync with bloom times of native plants, so they know when a certain native plant is going to emerge and flower, and they and they time their foraging to match up with that plant. Okay, um, and and when we've got maybe plants that are that we have to bring in, or the tubers and things like that, is there a good way to save those over the winter so that they're viable for next year, with, so that they're not actually coming out of dormancy um, until we want them next year? Because obviously the house is going to be warmer than outside. Um, what's the best way of keeping them from one year to the next? Oh man, I really don't know. I can't believe you asked a question I really don't know. <laughs> I, I know that a lot of people use kind of a, a sphagnum moss um, or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah store, store it, store it in a, in, a, in a cool basement or maybe in the garage if you can keep it, keep it away from any any mice that might be coming in or something. Although those big totes are good if you can carry them um, because those actually you've got a lid that you can keep in the garage and, the, and rodents don't mm-hmm. get into them um, because I think that, that that's one of the biggest pro- problems. But if, I, I guess if, if they're in a damp mo- moisture, would they go? do you think they, the roots and things would go rotten in there or should you check them every couple of months to make sure you haven't got rotten ones? You know, not, not, as, not as long as you don't have it too wet. You know, you sh- it shouldn't be soft and wet. You know, just lightly damp, and then in a cool place. You know, the cool is going to keep. It's going to be the main driver of preservation. So, just as long as it's not sopping wet, I think you'll be fine. And and so so I, I guess if um, if if people want want to maybe lift their their corners and things, and and you just kind of you put them straight into one of these tubs, they, you don't have to do a, do a part way station like like we do with those tender uh, plants like um, may, maybe the patio hibiscus, which is one of my notorious ones that looks lovely in the summer, and then, then the minute I bring it in, it loses all its leaves and then it starts again, um, a bit like the Maya lemon, which does on a biannual basis. <laughs> we, you know, you're supposed, supposed to do it in stages, and frank, frankly, I never quite get round to that because the, the weather changes before I'm ready. 
Oh, I know. It changes so fast in the fall, and then it goes up and down, up and down. Yeah, and I, and I, I know that there's going to be a first frost, but I think it's not until the weatherman tells you that there's going to be a frost that you take it seriously and run around like a, a demon trying to figure out what you should be saving um, and putting inside. Yeah, um, and I, I think fall, fall is great for, for that. Um, and as you say, the... the, um, the, the it's a much nicer temperature. And, of course, you, you can go out to botanic gardens and things and, and take a look in those, which is um, also a fun thing to do this time of year. Oh, yeah, get incredibly good ideas. And then, you know, before you know it, the gardening magazines will be hurled at you through the mail. So that'll tide you over through winter. Yeah. Well, anyway, we need to take um, our final commercial break here, um, but come back, everyone, and listen to more from Benjamin Voigt about Fall Garden. We will be right back. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Um, and this morning we have been talking about fall planting with Benjamin Voik. Um, so, ben- Benjamin, um, you've got a wonderful web page um, that shows some beautiful pictures of designs and things. You do a, a consulting business that um, specializes in native plants. Is that right? Yeah, yes, 100% native. Called Monarch Gardens, and I do consulting and design both here in eastern Nebraska, and I've done a couple long distance um, online on the web. Oh wow! So, so you can, uh, if somebody from may, maybe um, Minnesota said, "I've got this piece of ground. What should I do?" You can get them a design, kind of just by them taking a few pictures of it. Oh, lots of pictures. I mean, it's it's not ideal, but it has worked for several clients so far where they'll they'll take, you know, 20, 30 pictures, they'll send me a video, um, they'll they'll do various sample sample uh, soil samples around the site so we can get a better idea what the soil is like and we'll talk about drainage and 
And then, of course, about what, what kind of design they're looking for. And so, so what sort of um, broad area do you like to um, stick to? I mean, would you do somebody in California or Florida, or would you prefer just the, the Midwest areas? Well, Midwest to the East Coast, because you know, I'm, I'm most familiar with the plants that are native here to the tall grass prairie. And again, a lot of those natives go on almost all the way to the East Coast and sometimes all the way. So I really don't know my California plants. Yeah, and and I, I think California is almost a different country when it comes to the, the fauna oh, and things yeah. like that over, over there. Um, Incredible and, diversity. Oh, yes, uh, and so colorful. Um, I think mo- most of us are a little envious of the... <laughs> well, all, all the things that you can grow over there and south, um, particularly when, when you're up in the Midwest and things. Um, but, and you do uh, talks as well. Um, are all your talks based on designing with nature? Native plants, or do you vary into other things as well? No, it's primarily native plants. Um, I two two of the talks I give the most are well. The first one's about what kind of native plants you can use, why you should be using native plants, and then and then how to design with them. Uh, of course, I'm very heavy on wildlife benefits of native plants. I think that's really important, especially when you talk about climate change and and the fact that we're in a, a fairly significant extinction event going on right now across the planet with different animal species and plant species. So I like to push native plants when I can. Um, but I also like to talk about, you know, what are the, are, are there any, are there any ethical imperatives by using native plants? You know, if you're using native plants, you're helping wildlife adjust to climate change. And so shouldn't we be using more native plants? Yeah, and I, I think that's an important message to get out there, um, particularly when, when um, you know, pe- people really want um, good, solid knowledge um, and information about maybe the dan- dangers of bringing in all these um, exotics that, that uh, you know, and then we expect the, the butterflies to come in and survive on them. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much we don't know. I mean, there's so much we don't know even about native plants, so... You know, I just I just err on the side of caution. And out here on the prairie, where it's either really really hot or really really cold, our native plants are are incredibly robust and can and you can take pretty much anything thrown at them. And and do do you have a book out that maybe people can get from the webpage or Amazon dot com or anything like that? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I have it linked on Monarch Gardens, but I do have it linked on my blog, which is called The Deep Middle. Um, the book is called Sleep, Creep, Leap, and it's a collection of short essays um, sort of retelling the first three years of establishing my garden out here in Nebraska. Yeah, and, and, the, and the website is Monarch Gardens, is that right? Yes, that's, yeah, that's, my, that's my primary business. Website. And, and do, you, do you have a, a newsletter or anything like that on there? Yeah, I uh, started a monthly newsletter um, this just just in July, so it's about four or five months old now. You can sign up for my monthly newsletter and get links to the articles I'm writing. I write weekly articles on house.com, H-O-U-Z-Z, and as a monthly column on native plants and wildlife gardens. And I'm always finding all kinds of neat little environmental links and, and information about benefits of native plants and ecosystems, so I'll share those in the newsletter. Too. And, and you share those, those ideas on your blog as well, is that right? And, yes, and what yes. is the link to the blog? Is that, is that from the website or, or is that independent? 
Oh, no, you can you oh. can find it on the website, or you can go to it independently. It's called uh, The uh-huh. Deep Middle. Uh, but, but it links from the webpage as well. Yeah. And what, yeah. what about all the delightful social media things? Um, do you have fa- Facebook, LinkedIn, <laughs> LinkedIn um, Google Pluses, and all those things? Oh, I've got. I think I have all of them. Many of them. <laughs> and you keep up with all of them, right? Uh, I do. It's hard. I need to. I need to cut back on some of them. Um, and you can find me on Facebook on several places, but probably the most active place on Facebook is a is a page called Milk the Weed. Okay. Um, it started out as celebrating monarchs and milkweeds, and now it's celebrating all native plants. Okay, and and I, I guess um, you know we've just got a couple of minutes um, left. Um, the importance, if somebody's really just starting getting into natives, what would be some of the basics that they should be looking at as far far as rather than design, just introducing a few natives into the garden? Which are the easiest things: uh, native azaleas and shrubs, or or the the plants and the grasses? Any of them, you know, just get started. Put put one in the ground and, and see see what kind of wildlife come. You know, I used to have butterfly bushes, and then I started getting more and more natives put into my garden, and I noticed the wildlife was using the native plants far more than the butterfly bushes. So, just observe what's using what, and then I think you'll get hooked. You know, put put a milkweed in, and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I didn't know all this stuff existed. Here it is, all living off of a single milkweed. And, and is it usually easy to find a source for that locally uh, rather than go online? Yeah. Well, there's, there's a great website that lists local sources for each state, and that website is called findnativeplants.com. Okay. And... That it's a great resource for nurseries and bloggers and writers who are in your state or hopefully even in your city that you can use it. And I, I would imagine it's very, very important, in particularly in urban areas where there's not an awful lot of planting left and it's kind of the concrete jungle. Yeah, uh, you know, of course, urban areas become their own special beast because then, you know, sometimes they become inhospitable to a lot of native plants and then you start have to, you have to start asking larger questions what kind of plants do work here is it native or is it not sometimes it isn't sometimes it isn't and and i think most states have a native plant society that are very helpful too yes and of course you're if you have a big university nearby they might they may have an extension office wonderful resource there for for uh natives as well well as everything else i think right (laughs) yes yeah 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 and i i I know that uh, most of the native nurseries seem to be that i've been aware of seem to be rather small one-man shops so they might be a little difficult to track down you tend not to find them in big nurseries mixed nurseries they might have a few native in one corner, but is it better to go for a, a specialist in natives so that you can get a, maybe a better idea of how to keep cope with them? Well, it's 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 been my experience. It's been my experience at those specialist nurseries. You know, they can they just I mean they do tend tend to not always but tend to know more about the natives, and so that way you can glean more information and, and learn more. And, and these are people who are very passionate about one kind of plant, native plants. So. If you can find them, go for it. I know, I know there are some good online nurseries, too, that ship native plants that are very large. And are there any that maybe come to mind that maybe you can share? I mean, I, I, know, I know I don't uh, know any in this area that where I am. Um, so how would one go, go about sourcing them uh, from one of the online places? 
Oh, yeah, no, I know you got a wholesale uh, uh, out there uh, called uh, uh, New Moon, but out, out here in the plains, I, I rely heavily on, on the uh, online places like Prairie Nursery and Prairie Moon Nursery. Uh-huh. Even my local Nebraska statewide arboretum. Um, has started shipping plants now. Now, now they grow almost exclusively native plants. So, so it would be a good idea to lo- to visit your local um, botanic gar- garden and talk to them about uh, maybe where they get some of their natives from in their area. Because I, I think yes. it's again, it's one of those yes. things that you really need to find somebody local if you can, so that you can look at the plants if, apart from anything else to make sure they'll fit into your um, landscape plans. Yeah, and it would be nice if we had even more demonstration gardens, you know, public and private, that we could look at to see these native plants. I don't feel like we have enough to actually get a good idea about all the different design possibilities we can have. With kind native. of how, how big um, <laughs> some of those things actually get, uh, because some, some of the natives do get, oh, like okay. the Joe Pye weed. Um, though I have found, found that that becomes a guest in my garden. On the few time, times that I found, found <laughs> it, it was a guest, and I just let it grow, and it does great. So, so not all um, guests that come into the garden are weeds. Some of them can actually be rather beautiful. Oh, yeah, and... and these native plants will tend to grow differently out in the wild than they will in the garden, too. Um, sometimes in the garden, they'll grow a lot bigger just because the conditions are, are so incredibly favorable. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I certainly think uh, things like milkweed are really great to grow. Although I have to say the last house we were in, it was right up against the house in front of the patio and it was about six foot high and it was a real mess and I really had to I I mean I I hated it but and hated myself but I had to get rid of it because you you couldn't move for for it um, down the pathway for instance from the house to the to the the swimming pool it was right there Um, so somebody had forgotten to trim it or maybe they'd planted one and it had gone wild or something i don't know but uh, but yeah i mean i think it's worth uh, most most plants seem to be pretty good in a garden uh, even the guests yes and 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 with milkweed we have 144 different species to choose from so just make sure you do your research and choose the right one that works for your your garden wow well, i didn't realize there were that many of them and they all produce the same sort Absolutely. of flower that attracts um, the the butterflies and things Oh, different kinds of flowers and, and different and different kinds of, of leaves and different chemicals in the leaves. Um, some some of the milkweeds are actually more attractive to monarchs than others because the uh, uh, because the leaves have the chemicals that the monarchs want. Uh, some of the leaves have more. Some of them have less. Yeah, and and of course it's it's worth maybe taking a look at some of the different sorts. Uh, some of them are smaller than tall, and there are taller ones, I think, aren't there? Uh, and of course, and you and you yeah, have to be tolerant yeah. of but, um, the the first stage of the butterfly, which is the caterpillar. Um, but back to good old yeah. school fifth grade or something, you need to have the caterpillar if you want the butterfly. <laughs> Okay, well, we're kind of at the the end of the the show, Benjamin, but I want to thank you so much for being a guest this morning. Um, It's been great, great fun, and I think uh, growing natives is such an important thing to do um, in the in the gardens um, but anyway that is uh, the show today folks um, thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning we'll be back next week with another show talking all about gardens and gardening have a good gardening week and join me back here next Saturday this is America's Webradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you